0: Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us with your word. We ask that you give us the clarity, give us the eyes to see the things not seen, that we may understand that which you have memorialized for us these thousands of years ago. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're in a study of the covenants. We've studied the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, and now we're in the New Covenant. These are the four major biblical covenants that we find in the Scripture. Today we're going to continue our study of the New Covenant, and this covenant is found primarily in two passages, in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel 36. Last time we ended with verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. If you will turn there in your Bibles, please. Jeremiah 31. We're going to start with verse 31 just by way of context. Jeremiah 31, 31. The passage reads like this Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We saw last time that this covenant is addressed to the Jews, right? It says, The house of Israel, the house of Judah. That's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, meaning the whole entirety of the nation of Israelites. And the other thing that we saw in this verse is that the covenant is yet future because it says days are coming when I will make a new covenant. We also observe that, that the phrase new covenant, this is the only time in the entire Bible where the phrase new covenant is found. Of course, the new covenant is referred to in many passages, but that particular phrase, new covenant, those two words tied together, this is the only, excuse me, this is the only time in the Old Testament, is what I meant to say, in the Old Testament, where that phrase is found. But what I want to focus on is the future aspect of this covenant, of the new covenant. The Bible presents the new covenant as future, at least with respect to Israel. I'm not talking about with respect to the church, and of course there's a distinction between Israel and the church. With respect to Israel, the Bible always presents the new covenant in a future light. For Israel, the covenant's ultimate fulfillment... The new covenant's ultimate fulfillment for Israel is reserved for the millennium and then into eternity thereafter. Of course, the millennium is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. The thousand years, that phrase thousand years is referred to six times in Revelation chapter 20. We've seen that before, and so we take thousand years to be a literal thousand years because it's used six times in one chapter. It's very difficult to allegorize that phrase when it is used so specifically in one chapter of the Bible. Keep reading in verse 32. God says that the new covenant is not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, with the Israelites, in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So here we're talking, we, we, we're now Beginning a conversation, the Lord is, with respect to two covenants, because he says, I'm going to give you the new covenant, and that new covenant is not like the earlier covenant that I give you, that I gave you. The earlier covenant is the Mosaic covenant, as we saw. The Mosaic covenant, they broke. God says here in verse 32, I was a faithful husband, and you were not. Because remember, in the Mosaic covenant, it's bilateral, it's conditional. Both parties have an obligation. God has an obligation and the Israelites have an obligation. Bilateral means both parties have an obligation and conditional means one party's obligation is conditioned on the other party's obligation. And so, when we studied the Mosaic Covenant and you kind of boil it down, if you want to boil it down to its most basic essence, it's God saying, if you obey me, I will bless you. And if you disobey me, I will curse you. That's the, the Mosaic Covenant at its most basic core. That's, both parties have an obligation. They're bilateral. And so God says here in verse 32, you broke that covenant. I was a faithful husband, you were not. And, and as we saw last time in the, in the book of Hosea, this is portrayed in very graphic imagery where God tells the prophet Hosea to go find a prostitute and marry the prostitute and that will be an image, that will be a symbol Of God, who's the faithful husband, who has married an unfaithful whore. Because he is describing his people, the nation of Israel, as an unfaithful whore. But God is faithful to the prostitute. I mean, it's very graphic imagery in the book of Hosea, which we saw last time. And you see just a glimpse of it here in verse 32, where God describes himself as the faithful husband. But he loves his wife, though she is unfaithful. He loves his wife. And so we saw in the, book of, in the book of Hosea that he draws her back to him. And there's, even though it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about, it's awkward, but there's sexual imagery in Hosea. We saw in chapter 2, verse 14, that, is the, the, that, that has this imagery of it's, it's, it's an analogy, it's an anthropomorphism, meaning God using human imagery to describe himself, but it's the image of a man seducing his wife, drawing his wife back, back to him, taking her to a, to a, to a secluded place and, and speaking seductive words to her, because often, often a, a woman seduces a man with her body, and often a man seduces a woman with his words. God invented sex, so I'm not going to apologize for sex. Don't think of sex the way the world has perverted it, the way the, the, the porn industry has perverted it. That's not God's design for sex. God has designed sex between a man and a woman. Did you hear me? Between a man and a woman in marriage, a beautiful, intimate thing where they are glued, stuck Together. Or if I could use the phrase from Genesis 2, they are one flesh. Physically, they're one flesh. Emotionally, in their souls, they're one flesh. Intimacy. And this is why the scripture uses the, the verb yada, the Hebrew verb yada. I will know you. You will know me. This is what we'll see in a moment, just by way of review. That's a word of intimacy. Sometimes the scripture even uses yada to mean the intimacy between a husband and a wife where they physically, sexually know each other. This is the imagery. It's not saying that God has sex with human beings. The living God is not like the God of the Romans or of the Greeks. You know, Zeus is going to go have sex with this woman and produce this creature. That is not what the text is saying. Let me be crystal clear about that. God is spirit. And besides, God is not immoral like these fictional pagan gods of antiquity. Now, I do believe in Genesis 6 that the angels, the fallen angels, rebelled and that they had relations with human women. We've studied that before. But what I want to emphasize here is that God in the New Covenant is using language of analogy, where he is describing himself as a faithful husband. And in the book of Hosea, she is described, Israel, his chosen people, is described as a faithless, adulterous prostitute. And lest we Gentiles get too high on our high horse and think, boy, those Israelites, they were a mess. They were, but so are we. So are we. Don't think that that if God had given the the new covenant or or had given any of the covenants to the nation of the United States of America that we would have done any better. There's a distinction between the church and Israel. I'm not saying America is Israel. Please don't, don't, don't take that from what I'm saying. There's a distinction between the church and Israel. I'm just using a hypothetical to make a point. If God had given the new covenant or any of the covenants, Let's take the Mosaic Covenant, which is bilateral. If God had given that to, to America, which He didn't, we would have failed as abysmally as Israel. And the evidence is that we are fundamentally a wicked culture. I wish it, wish it wasn't true because I love my country, but it is undeniable. And in many ways, we are more evil than Israel ever was in the Old Testament because we have rejected the God of our fathers. But I digress. Let's keep reading in verse 33. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, God says. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here God is promising an entirely new order of things, an entirely new era an era of intimacy between himself and his chosen people, Israel. This intimacy does not exist today in the year 2023. This intimacy has not existed in the church age at all. It won't exist. The intimacy between Israel and her God won't exist at all in the church age because today there is hostility between Israel and her God. Right now, Israel is estranged from her husband, to use the analogy, the imagery of Jeremiah 31 and of Hosea. She has rejected him. Israel's God came in the flesh to commune with her, to tabernacle with her. The the word tabernacle, remember in, in the Gospel of John, he tabernacled among his people. Tabernacle is just an old way of saying tent. But when you make tabernacle not a noun but a verb, He pitched his tent. God pitched his tent among his people. God in the flesh came to live and commune with his people, to offer his people, to offer Israel the messianic kingdom and to institute the promised new covenant. Let me say that again. God came as a man to institute the new covenant to Israel. To Israel. To offer it and to institute it to Israel. But Israel hated God in the flesh. In fact, she murdered him. How does God die? He doesn't. God is everlasting. God is eternal. How does that work? An eternal God united in one person with a man, fully God, fully man. How does the hypostatic union work? Where and the eternal God is united with a finite human being, and the, and and Jesus dies, but God doesn't die. How does omniscience be united with limited knowledge of a baby, a baby who knows nothing? How does omnipresence, where God is. Everywhere. He's on Mars. He's on Venus. He's on the earth. He's in this room now. He's in heaven. He's everywhere. And yet he is limited in time and space with a baby that grew up to be a man. How does that work? How do those two things work together? The attributes of deity and the characteristics, the finite characteristics of humanity in one person forever? I don't know. I don't know. And that's okay. Because he is God and I am not. That's what I know. God in the flesh came to Israel and she hated him. And she murdered him. So God in the flesh, the night before he was to be murdered, the night before Jesus was to be murdered, he instituted the new covenant. He instituted it knowing that the church would be coming. He instituted it he says in Luke 22:2, 2, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That's what we celebrate in communion. But you say, well, wait a second. The church is not Israel. I agree. I'll say that a thousand times. The church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. How can God in the flesh, how can Jesus institute the new covenant when the new covenant is given to the house of, Je- of Judah and the house of Israel? Another way of saying all of the Israelites. How can he institute the new covenant for the church when the covenant is given to Israel? We'll see that as the study goes along, but the short answer to that question is that the church enjoys the spiritual blessings of the new covenant temporarily during the age of the church only. We'll see that as we go along. What I want you to just kind of get a glimpse here is that the New Covenant was instituted at least partially the night before Jesus was to be crucified. At least he's announcing the institution, the partial institution of the covenant. He's announcing it the night before he's to be crucified. It's actually made available through the cross because one of the aspects of the New Covenant is forgiveness of sins. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 9.15. He's not writing, the writer of Hebrews is not writing that to the nation of Israel. He's writing that to church-age believers. Paul, the apostle to the who? To the Gentiles. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, said that he was a minister of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3.6. My point is, as our study unfolds, we will see that the church partially, partially enjoys the spiritual blessings of the new covenant, but the ultimate, final, complete fulfillment is reserved for the addressee of the new covenant, Israel, whom Jesus will draw to himself when he returns. To use the analogy of Hosea 2, he will will allure, he will draw. Israel to himself. And then the new covenant will be fully and completely enjoyed by the nation of Israel. Keep reading in verse 34 of Jeremiah 31. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will, give, for I will forgive their iniquity. That's made available only through the cross. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is the Hebrew verb yada, which I mentioned earlier. It can mean to know data or information, but it can also mean intimacy. There's a big difference between simply knowing data and knowing someone intimately. There's a difference between knowing information, having intellectual knowledge about someone or something, and being intimate with that person. There are plenty of people who know data about God. And are hostile and not intimate with him. There are plenty of godless seminaries, for example, like Harvard University. They have a seminary there. But that seminary is fundamentally different than the seminary that existed when the, when the university was formed in the 1600s, which was formed to teach men did you hear me? Men. To go into the ministry and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ based on the scripture. Because in order to get into Harvard in the 1600s, you had to have some understanding of the Greek language. They wouldn't even let you in unless you had an understanding of the Greek language. But they've jettisoned the the, the liberal seminaries, the godless seminaries. I'm just using the modern seminary of, of Harvard as an example. There are many others. They've jettisoned the language years ago, the languages, Hebrew and Greek, years, years, years ago. And they have untethered themselves from the absolute truth of the Word of God. And so they may know data about the Bible and about God, but I submit to you they are hostile and not intimate with God at all. King Saul is a great illustration of knowing data about God but being hostile to God. And as we studied this past Wednesday, Saul evidenced that. I mean, he knew many things about God. Samuel had revealed those things to him. But as we saw last Wednesday, Saul evidences his hate for God and for God's will by him murdering the priests of God at Nob in 1 Samuel 22. My point is that the Hebrew verb yada, which is, which is translated here to know, means intimacy. Intimacy requires trust. Intimacy requires trust, whether that is one spouse's trust for another, right? Two spouses are intimate, and part of that intimacy involves trust, where one spouse trusts the other spouse, and the other spouse trusts the other spouse. Intimacy involves trust. It's that way between spouses, and it's that way between us and God. The reason we're not intimate with God is because we don't trust Him. That's just the truth. The reason we're not intimate with God is because we don't trust Him. Part of the way a spouse trusts the other spouse is by believing that that other spouse is going to be faithful. And part of the way that we trust God, the way that we trust God, is by believing that He will be faithful. The writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews eleven six, 6, and without faith it is impossible to please him, to please God. The him there is capitalized. It's a reference to God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. If you trust that God is good, if you trust that God has made promises to you that he will fulfill, if you trust that God is reliable, trustworthy, then that's the foundation for intimacy with him. That's faith in him. Faith is the foundation of intimacy with God. It's not an accident that God uses the analogy of a husband and a wife... A male and a female, born a male, born a female, redundant statements because even those who seek to undo God's design for gender, they really can't. They can mask it. They can camouflage it. They can take the medication. They can mutilate their bodies. But the woman's always going to be an X X chromosome, and the man is always going to be an XY chromosome. You can't undo God's design. You can try to your own demise, but you can't undo it. The reason why God uses the imagery of a husband and a wife For his description of intimacy, the fascinating thing is, it's intimacy between God and Israel, and then you have God in the flesh speaking of intimacy between himself and the church. Does the church replace Israel? No. Two different entities, but both with this imagery of intimacy. One is the intimacy between God, between Yahweh and Israel, and the other one is the intimacy between Christ and the church. But the reason why the analogy is made in the Scripture that that intimacy is related and and, and pictured and illustrated in the intimacy between a husband and a wife is because that is the closest human union that can, just in a slight way, portray the intimacy that God has designed between humanity and Him. This is why the devil, in his great hate for humanity, seeks to counterfeit God's design for marriage, because he seeks to cut off the theology that is communicated in marriage between a husband and a wife. He seeks to confuse it and counterfeit it and cut it off so that the world lives in darkness, so that the world lives in ignorance about the great design that God has for intimacy with humanity. Verse 34 of Jeremiah 31 is a prophecy about intimacy between God and the Jewish people. Between God and the Jewish people, this will happen in the millennium when Israel will enjoy the ultimate, final, complete fulfillment of the covenant. There will be permanent closeness, warmth, and friendship between God and Israel. Now this raises the issue of that we ended on last time and that a question was raised about last time. The issue is this. How permanent, really it's a question, how permanent and widespread will this intimacy be? This is a serious question that touches on the sovereignty of God, the free will of man, and how we read our Bibles. So let me spend some time on this. In Jeremiah 31, 34, God doesn't merely say they will know me, He says, they will all know me. They will all know me. Does this mean, this is the real question that I'm putting on the table. Does this mean that every Jew for a thousand years, for the millennium, when the new covenant is going to be fully enjoyed, ultimately fulfilled for Israel, does this mean that every single Jew for a thousand years will be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? The short answer, if I understand the text correctly, is no. Now, I think that the overwhelming majority of them will be believers, but I don't believe that it's 100%, and let me explain why. There are two reasons, two reasons why I believe that. Number one, free will. And number two, the great, great wickedness and darkness of the human heart. Those are the two reasons. And let me unpack that. Those are the two reasons why I think it's going to be an incredibly high percentage, an overwhelming majority of Jews who will believe in Jesus Christ and will follow him. But I think it will not be 100%. Now, if you ask me to give you a percentage, high 90s, very high, but I don't think it'll be 100%. And this isn't just an academic exercise, right? This is not just, we're going to go through text here, and, and I'm, I'm raising this question not because it's a question, you know, for the, for the brainiacs uh, up, in the, up in the ivory tower somewhere at some se- seminary. No, this is a question for you and me because it, 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 it pertains to the sovereignty of God, to the free will of man, and how we read our Bibles. This is a very important question. Let me explain why this is my understanding of the text. I'll start with the phrase, all Israel. This is basically what God is talking about in Jeremiah 31-34. Because in Jeremiah 31-34, remember the context is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he's, he's saying, all Israel will know me. They will all know me. They will all be intimate with me. This is the, the description here in Jeremiah 31 At this church, we believe, at Fredericksburg Bible Church, we believe that the Bible should be interpreted with a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. Hermeneutic just means the method that you use to interpret the Bible. Do you use an allegorical method? So when you see a thousand years, do you say, that must mean a long time, because a thousand years has this kind of symbolic meaning? Or do you take a literal reading of the Bible? A thousand years seems like a thousand years. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that language doesn't have figures of speech. No, it does. And, and even though you have a literal hermeneutic, you should still recognize figures of speech like hyperbole and things like that. But we believe here at this church in a literal, grammatical, historical reading of the Bible, hermeneutic. When you read the text literally, you give the words their plain meaning. So when you get to the word all, how do you read the word all? Well, the plain meaning of the word all normally is 100%, right? So you say, well, hey, wait a second, pal. On the one hand, you're saying not 100%, but on the other hand, you're saying 100%. The word all, with respect to Israel, in the Bible, doesn't always mean So here, we're going to use a literal, grammatical, historical, hermeneutic to read the Bible, and we're going to look at the text to inform how the word is used in the text. Sometimes it does mean 100% of Israel. Like in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, here, all Israel means 100%. Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, Since that time no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. This is a description, kind of a, a, a summary of the prophet Moses describing him. What I want to focus on here is the last phrase, in the sight of Israel, because the text here is referring to all of these miracles that were done in the sight of Israel. It means 100%. All Israel here means 100%, 100% of the Exodus generation. The entire generation saw the miracles that Moses did before the Egyptians. They saw the the ten plagues. They saw... Moses parted the Red Sea, and the Israelite army, right, they all walked through the Red Sea when it was parted. Not a single one of that generation didn't walk through the Red Sea. They all did. And they all saw the Egyptian army get drowned as, Moses, as God, through Moses, closed the walls of the Red Sea. They all saw, everybody in that generation, the seven-year-olds and the 70-year-olds, they all saw the miracles that God did through Moses. And so the the phrase here, all Israel, means literally 100% in Deuteronomy 34. Likewise, in 2 Samuel 8, it means 100%. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Here the phrase, all Israel, means 100% of the entire population of Israel. David's reign was over all the Israelites, all of them. But neither of these passages, whether it's Deuteronomy 34 or 2 Samuel 8, refer to 100% of the Jewish people entirely for all generations. Right? Deuteronomy 34, 2 Samuel 8, refer to specific generations. Deuteronomy 34 is the Exodus generation, 100% of them. All of Israel is used to describe 100% of the Exodus generation, Deuteronomy 34. Then we get to 2 Samuel 8, and the phrase all Israel is used to describe the one or two generations, depending on whether you want to calculate a generation's 30 years or 40 years, the one or two generations who lived during the 40 year reign of David the king. My point is. The phrase all Israel is not being used to refer to all the generations of Israel who have, always, who have, over some extended period of time, it's used to refer to a generation or two generations, depending on how you calculate it, for that particular era, that particular context. Either Moses with the Exodus generation or with David for the one or two generations that he ruled over. In 1 Kings 12, the phrase all Israel means something other than 100% of Israel. 1 Kings 12, 1. Then Rehoboam, remember Rehoboam is Solomon's son, went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. This is not saying that every single Israelite, remember you have David is king, then you have his son Solomon who's king, and then you have Rehoboam who's king. This is the Rehoboam here. When it says that all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king, it's not saying that every single Israelite showed up in Shechem and they were all kind of elbow to elbow, squeezed into this this place where they were doing the coronation. That's not how a coronation works, right? With a coronation, you bring the the VIPs from a particular area. All the VIPs from Israel and maybe even some other non-VIPs would have been there in Shechem for the coronation of Rehoboam, but not every single Israelite. They wouldn't have fit. So here, my point is that the phrase all Israel means something less than 100%. Same thing in Acts 13, 24. There we read, after John, that's John the Baptist, had proclaimed before his coming, before Jesus' coming, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, this isn't saying that every single Israelite who was alive, every single Jew at the time of John the Baptist, is not saying that every single Jew heard John the Baptist preach. They didn't have smartphones, right? They didn't have TVs where they could record it and then they could project it on some techno- technological device. No, this is saying that a cross section of Israelites, a cross section of the people, of the Jews heard the preaching of John, and maybe that preaching then made its way out to the people, but did it make its way out to every single Israelite? Did everyone stand before John and hear him preach? Then in Romans one, excuse me, Romans eleven, Paul talks about all Israel. He uses the phrase all Israel in the context of the new covenant. Romans eleven twenty five. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. There's our phrase. Just as it is written, the deliverer will will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. Of course, Paul is talking about the new covenant here. And he's citing Jeremiah 31, our passage, as well as other Old Testament passages. He says there was a mystery. This was a mystery. Now as we've studied before, the way the the Greek text uses the term musterion, translated our English word mystery. It's not like a whodunit novel. It's not like a, mmm, that's tough to figure out, you know, let's 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 analyze that from this angle. Mmm, that's tough. No, let's analyze it from that angle and that. Mm, Man, that's, oh, I finally figured it out. That's not how mystery is used in the Bible. Mystery is used to mean something that was concealed, and now it's revealed. So Paul is using the term mystery to mean God concealed something in Old Testament times, and now he reveals it in New Testament times. And the thing that was concealed was that God concealed his sovereign plan to delay when Israel would receive the blessing of the new covenant. That's what Paul's saying here. God concealed from the prophets, from the the, the Israelites of the Old Testament, he concealed that he planned to delay the implementation of the new covenant for Israel. And part of what was concealed, part of the mystery, was that he would delay it, He would delay the blessing of the new covenant for Israel so that instead he would bless an entity that no one even knew of in the Old Testament, the church. He would elevate the church and not bless Israel. He would elevate the church above Israel. That is the status of where we are in the church age. The church is elevated above Israel. The church is blessed above Israel. Israel is being punished right now, temporarily. The mystery was that God would delay the implementation of the new covenant so that he could bless you and me, things that, that I fear we as Christians take for granted, that we are receiving these incredible spiritual blessings of the new covenant. The mystery was that God would delay the implementation of the new covenant For Israel, and instead he would institute the blessing part of, excuse me, the spiritual blessing part of the new covenant for the church. This was what was concealed and now is revealed in the church age. During this period where God would do this in the church age, Israel would not be blessed. Israel would be set aside through her partial hardening, and the Gentiles would be elevated above Israel temporarily. I'll say what I've said a thousand times. It, the church does not replace Israel. These are temporary things. Israel has a future, and her future is found in the fulfillment of the new covenant, and only temporarily is there a partial hardening of Israel. Only temporarily is Israel set aside. Only temporarily are we Gentiles elevated above Israel. This is, this is, what, this is the mystery that Paul was talking about. Paul says he doesn't want his Gentile audience to be uninformed about this. You see how he uses that word uninformed so that they're not wise in their own estimation. Can I paraphrase? He says, don't get cocky. You Gentiles are being blessed by God. That's not because you're so amazing. It's because God is sovereign. And he decides the dispensations. He decides how blessing will be distributed from Him, and He decides human history. God is sovereign, is what Paul is saying here. Do not get arrogant. All of this is the unfolding of God's sovereign plan. It's not that the Gentiles are any better than Israel. They're not. It's just God has concealed it in the Old Testament. It was a mystery, and now He's revealed it, and His sovereign plan is to temporarily set aside Israel for the... Gentiles, so that the Gentiles can be elevated. When the last Gentile walks through the door of faith, the last Gentile of the church age, then God's clock will strike midnight, and the age will be finished. And thereafter, all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. 26. You see that there on the screen. All Israel. Which takes us back to the question, what does all Israel? Israel mean? Does it mean 100% or does it mean something less? We're talking about the phrase all Israel in the context of the new covenant and the millennium. We know from Matthew 25 that only believers will enter into the thousand year reign. So that's the first part of the answer. The first part of the answer of does all Israel mean 100% or does it mean something less than 100%? The first part is found right there that the Jews who begin the millennium, who enter into the millennium, everybody who enters into the millennium will be believers, Gentiles and Jews, but the Jews who enter in the, into the millennium will be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that from the, the Sermon on the Mount, excuse me, from the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. It's a small group. It's a small group of Jews who were, will enter into the millennium, and I say that because humanity will be on the brink of extinction right before the millennium. Humanity will be taken to the brink of total extinction. Right? People think, oh, the, 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 a meteor is going to hit the earth and we're all going to go extinct, or this is going to happen, or that's going to happen. But there's some truth to the fear that is innate in every human being that there is a time where humanity will come to the brink of extinction. I mean, that's why Jesus says in these stark words that we don't take serious enough. That's why he says in Matthew 24, verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, the days of the great tribulation, the second half of the seven years, unless those days had been cut short, no sarks, no flesh, translated, no life, would have been saved near extinction. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The population of the world will be decimated during the seven year tribulation, especially the last half of the seven year tribulation, which is what Jesus refers to as the Great Tribulation. That is the concentration of Satan's wrath. Satan will have been expelled from heaven, and his unbridled wrath and evil. And the openness of the spiritual warfare will be evident, right? There is a spiritual war going on now, but it's cloaked. We don't see demonic forces. If you see angels and demons here, we need to have a conversation. We don't see them visibly. They will be seen in the seven-year tri- uh, tribulation, especially in the last three and a half years, which Jesus refers to as the Great Tribulation, the Great Tribulation, which will bring humanity to the brink of extinction because the devil hates you. He hates humanity. He was a murderer from the beginning, to use Jesus' phrase from John chapter 8, verse 44. So the answer to the question, does all Israel mean 100% of Israel, in the context of the millennium, which is the context of the new covenant for Israel, the first part of the answer is the beginning group of Israelites of Jews in the millennium are all believers 100%. 100% those who enter those who are still alive at the end of the tri- tribulation and enter into the millennium who are Jews all will be believers. So at least at the beginning of the of the and who who leaves the who uh, who were still alive at the end of the tribulation and enter into the millennium that 's what I meant to say i 'm not sure if that 's what I said they 're hundred percent believers at the beginning that 's the first part of the answer so at the beginning of the of the millennium, all Israel means one hundred percent but the that will not be the case by the end of the millennium before I get there. Let me mention the judgment that will happen before the millennium begins. Because there there will be unbelievers and believers on the planet at the end of the tribulation. But if only believers enter into the millennium, unbelievers have to be removed. And that's the judgment of the goats and the sheep in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 25, where Jesus speaks of this... Judgment, Matthew 25, verse 41, eternal fire, the the unbelievers will be sentenced to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The goats are the unbelievers, and the sheep are the believers. So you have this group, I'm, I'm focusing on the Jews, the Jewish believers who enter into the millennium. You have this group, this cadre, this very small group who are exclusively believers, who enter into the millennium, they will make babies, lots of babies. It's going to be a baby explosion. I mean, a population explosion. And the reason for that is because humanity, will. there will be a very small amount of human beings on the planet, at least in comparison to, to before the rapture. And so, especially the Jews, the Jews... They have to have a huge population because if they're going to be a kingdom of priests to all the nations, to the entire planet, that small cadre of Jews have to really procreate. They have to make a huge Jewish population. And so you see this population explosion for Israel in Isaiah chapter 60 verse 22 with a language that is recorded there. The smallest one will become a clan and the least one a mighty nation. This population explosion for Israel will be essential for the blessings that will be spread to all of humanity in the millennium. So that really gets us to the core of the question. We know that the beginning of the millennium will be 100%, all Israel will be 100% believers, those who enter the millennium. What about their babies? That's the real question, right? What about... Their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great- great-great- great-great-great-grandchildren. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that many greats will be alive in the millennium because there's not going to be any wars. There's not going to be any wars. There's not going to be any, any nuclear wars. There's not going to be any wars with ARs. There's not going to be any wars with tanks. Humanity's not going to be killing each other. I mean, there may be crime here, from here, it, 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 periodically here or there, but very minimal because the text says that Jesus will rule with a rod of iron and wars will be finished because the king will be on the planet and he will have taken the kingdom of God and brought it to this planet with, with peace and justice and righteousness, all of those things. And so the amount of human beings that will exist on the planet The population explosion will not just be with Israel, but with the Gentiles as well. To the question of the descendants of descendants of descendants of of that cadre of Jews who enter into the millennium, the question is, will they be believers, all of them, 100% of them? This is what raises the question of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. It's true that God is sovereign, completely, absolutely sovereign. But he also created free will. Those two things coexist. Exactly how they coexist, that's above my pear grain. I I don't know. But the Bible declares it, and so I declare it. By the end of the millennium, there will be a huge number of unbelievers. Think about that. By the end of the millennium, the thousand-year reign, where God in the flesh has come back and brought the kingdom of heaven to this planet, with peace and justice and no wars, no weapons. Unthinkable today. We mean no weapons. You've got to protect yourself today. But then, no weapons, right? The swords, swords will be melted into pruning hooks. After that thousand years, there will be a phenomenal amount of unbelievers. Unbelievers. Revelation 20. Verse 7 reads like this. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. These are unbelievers. Remember during the thousand years, Satan is incarcerated in a pit. You, 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 You get that at the beginning of Revelation 20. And now we're we're deeper into Revelation 20, and we get verses 7 and 8. These are unbelievers who will join the devil in his mutiny, in his revolution against Jesus. There will be a countless number of unbelievers. That's why the text says the number who join the devil are like the sand of the seashore. It's innumerable. I must tell you, this is incredibly disturbing. you understand what this reveals about the human heart. It reveals the great, great darkness and wickedness of who we are deep, deep, deep inside. The part of us that we don't show to anybody. Praise God. You don't need to see that part of me. And I don't want to see that part of you. But it's there. The notion... That you would have an inestimable number, an innumerable number of people who would join the devil after having lived in perfect environment for a thousand years. Not two years, not 50 years, not 500 years, a thousand years. The idea that you would have an inestimable number of people who would join the devil knowingly after a thousand years of perfect environment, after a thousand years of perfect blessing, after a thousand years under the perfect king, reveals the darkness of who we are deep, deep, deep down inside. It is a sad, sad testament to the wickedness of the human heart. The prophet Jeremiah said it so clearly in Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The human heart is hopelessly dark and bent on evil, and it is transformed only by the great mercy of God, the unmerited grace of God. And make no mistake, there is always a reckoning, always. You see that in verse 9 of chapter 20 of Revelation. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. It is not as if Jesus barely wins. There's no contest. He summons the fire of heaven to consume them, to consume his enemies. This is the sweet, cuddly, squishy Jesus who devours his enemy. That's the word that's used because there is always a reckoning. Always. The nations who are gathered against the beloved city there, the beloved city is Jerusalem. They seek to topple Jerusalem. They seek to topple the Jewish kingdom that is ruled by the Jewish king. In other words, this will be an anti-Semitic revolution. An anti-Semitic revolution is what the Gog and Magog revolution of, of Revelation 20 is. Does this mean that every rebel against the Jewish king will be a Gentile? Does this mean that there will be no Jewish Benedict Arnolds? Does this mean that there will be no Judas Iscariots in the millennium? No Jewish traitors? I'm not sure that we can say that simply on the basis of the word all, because the Bible doesn't always use the word all in the context of Israel to mean 100%, like in Romans 11, where we were earlier. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Today there is a partial hardening of Israel. That doesn't mean that 100% of Jews today are unbelievers. We support aerial ministries. One One of the missionary groups that we support is aerial ministries. What does aerial ministries do? They evangelize Jews. Of course Jews believe in in Yeshua today, in Jesus. Of course they do. But they are the vast minority of Israel today. The text here isn't saying that 100% of the Jews will be unbelievers during this age. It's the nation of Israel as a whole will be made up of unbelievers during this partial hardening. John one eleven didn't mean 100%. Right? John John 1, 11. He came into his own and his own received him not. Jesus came into Israel and Israel received him not. That doesn't mean that 100% of Israel didn't believe in Jesus. No. There were significant amount of believers in Jesus during his first advent. It's that the whole the nation as a whole, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of Israel rejected her Messiah. Romans 11:26 says that when the new covenant is fulfilled for Israel, in other words, the millennium, all of Israel will be saved, meaning the nation as a whole will be saved. The overwhelming majority of the nation will be saved. You see the parallelism. Just like today in the church, all Israel is not, they're not unbelievers. There is a small percentage where they are believers but the overwhelming majority are unbelievers today, during the church age. It's reversed in the millennium. Paul says all Israel will be saved. First, that means the small cadre of believers that enter into the millennium, but it's also a reference to all Israel during the millennium. In other words, it's a reference to the overwhelming majority of Jews during the millennium. In that thousand-year reign, the new covenant is fulfilled through Israel, not through the Gentiles. The time for the new covenant for the Gentiles will be over. The new covenant, I should say, the new covenant finds its full fulfillment. There still may be some uh, spiritual blessings associated with the new covenant for Gentiles in the the thousand-year reign. But the thousand-year reign is the final, complete, ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant for Israel. That's the time when Israel is elevated among the Gentiles. But the Bible does describe how the knowledge and salvation of God will be spread throughout all the world, meaning among the Gentiles. Habakkuk 2.14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Psalm 22.27, All the ends of the earth, will remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations will worship before you. Isaiah 52.10, The Lord has bared His holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God, of Israel's God. Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3, The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. These passages apply to the millennium. And they're saying all Gentiles will worship God. All Gentiles will, say, will see his salvation. You see that there? I mean, it uses the word all multiple times with respect to the nations. The goyim, the goy, that's us, Gentiles. It says all Gentiles will worship. All Gentiles will see the salvation of God. And the context for these passages are the millennium. Does that mean 100% of Gentiles? Clearly no, because there's the Gog and Magog revolution, which is an anti-Semitic revolution at the end of Revelation 20. It doesn't mean 100%. It's the same thing for Israel in the millennium, except that in the millennium, I believe the percentage of believers among Israel will be much higher than the percentage among the Gentiles. Don't ask me for percentages because I'd be reaching if I gave percentages. And the text doesn't give percentages at all. It uses words like all, which doesn't always mean 100%, as we've seen. I believe that the percentage of believers among Israel in the millennium will be much higher than among Gentiles. But in both, there's going to be a significant majority of believers And the reason I think it's higher with Jews in the millennium is because the Jews are benefiting from the New Covenant. The Jews will be elevated above the Gentiles. The reason why there is great blessing among the Gentiles today is because God has elevated us. We're enjoying the spiritual blessings of the New Covenant. Israel's not because they've rejected God. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man always coexist. So to sum all this up, the answer to the question is this. The new covenant does not mean that every single Jew in the millennium will be saved. It does not mean that 100% will be saved. It means that the overwhelming majority will be saved, but not 100% for 1,000 years. At least that's my understanding of the text. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you that you have recorded it for us. We ask that you challenge us by it and implant it deep in our souls that we may be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.